Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. My name's Catherine Carr, and this is season two of Relatively, the podcast all about potentially the longest relationships of your life. I think when we're not fighting, it's so nice. I mean, it makes it sound like we fight all the time. <laughs> I we don't, we do. It's so yeah, boring. I'll be bringing siblings together to talk about the connections they have as adults, as well as what it was like growing up together. Our mother brought discipline and a kind of role modelled diligence and conscientiousness and our dad who has all those qualities but is more anarchic. This week we're talking to Dr Chris and Dr Zand the Van Tulliken twins. He created a huge amount of moment to moment fun blowing stuff up, dyeing our food different colours, every (laughs) breakfast was an experiment. But I'll also talk to them separately to get a more private take on the relationship. Zand is the funny twin and I'm the straight boring twin he has a a get up and go that is very very unusual he is entirely responsible for getting both of us into medical school brothers and sisters are never straightforward chris and zand are both 42 neither of them are sure which is the oldest the twins present operation ouch on cbbc but their latest project is a podcast all about food and weight explosive subjects for siblings. We talk about fighting, binge eating and a near-death experience. But Chris starts the story in third form at school. I think mum and dad did a really smart thing. I don't, I've never asked them about how they reached this conclusion. We always went to the same school, but we were always in different classes. And there's a, a funny thing that Zana and I have where anyone who is my friend, you may experience this in a few minutes, Anyone who is my friend or who I have a relationship with can immediately just pick up with Zand where they left off with me. You just, you'll feel like you know him because, mm. you know, you and I've got on for the last, you know, 20 minutes, whatever. Yeah, I, that's definitely true that if people have met Chris, then I relax and I think, well, you've effectively already met me and it doesn't, you know, I can't make a good impression or a bad impression. If they like Chris, they'll like me. If they didn't like Chris, there's no hope. And so I don't I don't worry about it. He would go and make friends in his 3M he was in and I was in 3LN. And I had my friend Tim Millington, who's still one of my best friends in 3LN. And Tim is became friends with Zand. And then Tim had his, Zand had his friends in, in 3M and they became my friends. So it, it amplified the friends whilst allowing us to be our own people. But we wanted to be together and we were very lucky we got to go to a, medical school together I think largely because one of the profs there was kind of interested in twins and genes <laughs> we asked him later he said no I really just let you in because I wanted to see what would happen <laughs> so I would say I am so lucky to have a twin brother and I always think what my life would be like if I didn't have Chris and I think I would be um 
kind of utterly unfulfilled and doing something I hate. And I would say Chris is the, he has a, a get up and go that is very, very unusual. And when we were kids, he stole the maps from the summer camp that we used to go to. I think they were old maps. I don't think it was a bad theft, but he wasn't meant to take them. Our parents are Canadian. And, and so we we were on going to summer camp in Canada and he brought them back to England and planned a whole canoe trip when we were 16 in Northern Canada. This bit of the world he'd never been to before. <laughs> and, um, and just always wanted, when I was a junior doctor, he would try and get me to come with him to the Arctic and do these expeditions. And he has always dragged me along on his mad adventures. And without him, I think I would be doing something very... I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone to medical school. I mean, he, he got me into medical school. Is that right? He said that yeah. the guy who sort of let you in was curious about having some twins in his class. That's his story. No, uh, what happened was Chris said we should do medicine and I had been sort of gormlessly staring out the window for my entire childhood and thought that medicine sounded as good as anything. And certainly when I was a kid, it, it, you know, when you're 13, if you say to an adult, you, what I wanted to be the lead singer in Guns N' Roses when people asked me what I wanted to do. And so if you start saying I want to be a doctor, people are like, oh, that's great. Come and do some work experience at my surgery. Like people sort of take you under their wing. And of course, when you are... Yeah, I think we were 14 or 15, you say, I think I'll be a doctor. Everyone gets behind you and pushes, you know? Seriously, it's, it's, it's the most glorious thing you can say at a family it Christmas, is, you know, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. And of course, the reality of having two sons who are doctors is it's just, you don't really see them very much. And, mm. um, <laughs> you know, it's not a very glamorous career. And then, and then what was nice is we cooperated. So when it came to our interviews and things, Zanda and I just spent weeks interviewing each other so I remember coming out of the interviews, every interview we had for medical school and just I'd already practiced the questions with him. And that that was really an amazing leg up. Mm. And so it was immediately apparent this was a good idea. And then Chris just sat me down and interviewed me for months before our interviews. So when I got asked about the BSE crisis, and I had literally given Chris a 10-minute answer a couple of weeks before, having read articles about it, because he said it might come up. I mean, I'm, he's entirely responsible for getting both of us into medical school. That's so funny, because he tells a very kind of um, even-handed version of that story, that you interviewed each other, and so he was prepared because you had helped him be prepared. Well, I did I did help, but he, he, was, he was the driving force. But no, everything he's told you, his lies. When I was talking to Zant, he told a very sweet story about how you provide a lot of the get up and go in the energy, Chris, and how you stole, although he didn't think it was too naughty, some old maps from a camp in Canada and used it to plan an expedition. Do you remember that? I'd forgotten I took the maps. I think the maps were going to be thrown away. I mean, I want to kind of reinvent. Uh... <laughs> yeah, like I'm often the one who says we should go and do a thing, but Zant's the one who enables it to happen. Okay, at the moment... We're trying to do a live kids show on stage. And I'm like, we should definitely do this and we should write it. And we are writing. It'll be in the West End. But I can't do it, right? I'm not funny or enormously creative um, nor very gifted on stage. Whereas Zand, if I say, look, can you sort of write the show about this? Zand will write the song, do the dance, <laughs> make this whole show happen. But I'll have to be like, Zand, the show is starting on Tuesday, it's now Monday evening. We haven't rehearsed. Can we please, you know? All, and he's like, yeah, we get there eventually. <laughs> so there is some teamwork, but there's a lot of like, how dare, how dare you, you know? <laughs> I've done more, you know. There's a bit of that, but yeah. So I'm like the I'm the starter, and Zan's the finisher, maybe. 
Someone it has to be the originator, the generator, and someone's the reactor. I think that's in all good mm. creative teams, right? So tell me a little bit about um, being a twin. Obviously, you've never not been a twin, but what's it like for you being a twin? There are some really lovely things about being a twin, but the bad things are all tangled up with the good things. People think that Zander and I are the same person, and that can be fun. But I sometimes only feel like I'm half there if he's not around. I don't think anyone who hasn't met him really knows me. And he's usually the better version of me. Really? Yeah, Zand, anyone who watches the the children's show we do on Operation Out knows that Zand is the funny twin and I'm the straight, boring twin. And that's true in real life. I'm quite a shy, inhibited, anxious person who is deeply concerned with what the world around me thinks of me. And Zand is a very uninhibited, hilarious, confident, f- funny person who can give a 10-minute speech off the cuff and dance on a table. And I I watch Zand doing these things and uh, sort of marvel. But I also feel like, oh, I could do that too, although I never will. I was the first twin out, which in some countries would make me the younger one, but in, in the UK makes me seven minutes older than Chris. It would make you the younger one. In Holland, the tradition is that the one who's out first was made last, as if it's some sort of factory assembly process up there. <laughs> so in Holland, all the you know inheritance stuff would be reversed. Several people have told me that. I've never formally fact-checked it, so, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I've always been told that there are countries where um, the logic is different. <laughs> Zand is older. He's seven minutes older, so he came out first. I don't know why I found that hard. And so who is protective of who then in that dynamic? Is anyone? That's an amazing question. I'm dependent on Zand, but I protect him. Which is much more to do with me than, than him, right? So as, as the more anxious twin, I both need more support and I'm more concerned about him and what people think of him. Okay, so is that a bit of anxiety projection that you do? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so I think I'm caring for him, and really, I'm just projecting my anxiety onto him. I guess. Is that because you're two halves of the same person, so you have to be anxious for the other half of you? So, I I think twins polarize each other. If he's worrying about a thing, that gives me the space to not worry about it, and vice versa. So, we've just made this. We've just made this podcast called um, Addicted to Food. A huge amount of our lives over the last 10 years have been spent with me angsting about Zahn's weight and trying to get him to lose weight or con- control his weight. And he's not, not really fat. significantly overweight. No, he doesn't, he doesn't have sig- significant overweight, although clinically he does. Um, and we don't look particularly different. But it really upsets me, uh, largely because of his health, and largely I angst about what people will think of him. So I I try and control that. And that's sort of the basis of the podcast, is me exploring how to control my brother's weight and realising I can't. It set out as a Chris is going to help Zand lose weight podcast, and it became a how does anyone try and change the behavior of anyone else and I thought well I'm a doctor so I'm good at that and it turns out that like most doctors I am really actually very unskilled at that Um, but we interviewed some people who were skilled. 
And psychologically, that's a rich picking, I'm going to say. Identical <laughs> twins, food issues, weight issues, controlling, and you're both doctors. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I like to dabble in pop psychology, but, you know, we could go for hours with that stuff. You have a very kind of therapeutic interview style. You, you give the impression of being really interested, which is like the basis of almost all therapy. <laughs> this is, it's really nice talking to you and be like, <laughs> oh, finally someone, finally someone cares. That's because genuinely I am totally interested and sure, very, sure. very nosy. I am. I am. I am very, very interested. Yeah, it was, it was so extraordinary making that podcast. I, I actually thought that it would be impossible to make when we started recording because there is nothing more annoying than having any family member sort of scrutinise you with, with a view to making you a better person in anything. But I mean, particularly sort of weight and diet and things like that. And we started recording it and it was just miserable. But I mean, it's very difficult because it all comes from a place of love. And the, the easiest thing is to be the, the sibling with a problem. It's much nicer to be the person who's being worried about than the person. I would hate it if, if Chris was having any of the, the things that he worries about for me. I'd find it enormously difficult. So I know it. I know he loves me and that's why he, he does it. But it does lead us to get quite annoyed with one another as well. But ultimately, the podcast was very, very funny to make. And it actually brought into the open a conversation that I think has been so impossible to have for so long. That's so interesting what you just said. I'm I'm stuck on that. I, I heard the thing about the podcast, but I'm stuck on the fact that it's easier to be the sibling with the problem who's being worried about rather than being the sibling who's got to be responsible for worrying. I guess we we made it we were making a documentary last year about the COVID crisis and mostly about Chris's colleagues and Chris's work at, at University College Hospital in London. And then I got ill and I ended up in A&E at that hospital while we were meant to be filming. And so my illness became wrapped up in that story. Mm. And that was all fine and it sort of fitted in quite appropriately with the sort of the general tone of the thing. And I had to have my heart restarted in A&E, which sort of oh sounds more dramatic than it was. But it was sort of a, the programme had a moment where my heart flatlined in it, which adds to a, it's definitely, like it, it's a sort of dramatic bit of telly and 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 it was dramatic but it, but it was all done in a very controlled way and i think there was very little danger of me actually dying but but when i came round from that procedure i'd had lots of ketamine and gone i mean fentanyl whatever they just got me up to my eyeballs on drugs and we'd had a real laugh about you know as i was coming around we'd had a real laugh and it was really nice and chris was there to look after me so i didn't think the footage would be distressing at all and then watching the final edit of the program I found it almost impossible to watch, not because I was ill, but because Chris, when I was anaesthetised, Chris was just, just bawling. And it was all, even now I have a, a lump in my throat thinking about it, but he, 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 and I thought, God, I would not want to watch Chris have his heart restarted. I wouldn't have been able to, to manage that at all. And mm -hmm. I think he really struggled with it as well. That's huge. I mean, you say it's a dramatic bit of telly. It's a dramatic bit of life. Perhaps. Not not many people have that sound. I just want to put that out there. Um, Zahn said something so interesting. He said, it's much nicer to be the twin who's worried about or the sibling that's worried about rather than the one that has to do the worrying. And he said about the time that he was very poorly and ended up with his heart having to be restarted in the hospital where you were filming and how he hadn't realised till he saw the footage how much easier it was to be the one who was very ill than the one looking at the one who was very ill. And I wonder 
what you think about that, Chris, and that episode. Yeah, I'm the real victim here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think a lot of families and patients with, you know, people with ill loved ones will sort of acknowledge this, that being the patient is often easier than being the relative. And I, I see that in my kind of professional work. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but then, uh, like, I've definitely had the thought of when I've been worried about Zand, I've thought, well, I'm going to go and do something and give him something to worry about and then see how he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of what, like... That's a constructive way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've never I really... really relate to that. I really relate to that. That's a really good. And I'd say something like, <laughs> "Now look what you made me do." <laughs> now, That's now good. see how it feels. <laughs> see how you like it. I could do something Taste like that. Your own medicine. Though. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Yeah, you lace it with some cliche and and then storm off. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, Zon doesn't worry about me very much, but. Um... Maybe he does. I mean, of course I do. Of course I do. But I'm, I'm, yeah, no, of course, you know, I do. Of course I do. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So tell me what it was like growing up then. There was you two, and what other siblings were there in the family? So we've got this younger brother, Bratty, or Jonathan, um, who's now 40 and uh, quite a successful film director. And we we all love each other equally, although we have a very different relationship. I, we don't fight with Jay. I would never have an argument with Jay. And I depend on Jay a lot, but I never worry about Jay. I never call Jay up and tell him he has to change his life or do anything differently in the way that I do with Zand. Jay doesn't represent me no. in the way that Zand does. So growing up um, was, well, what can I say about us growing up that isn't... Um, was it fun? Was it not fun? Were your parents involved? Were they not involved? I think my discomfort talking about my childhood is it was so perfect and privileged in sort of every way that it, it's I have an unease almost saying that because I, I think I, I, I was so so fortunate to have and that, that you know they're still around um, so fortunate to have the parents I have so they, they're very different mum mum is like me she's quite an intense person she worries she still worries she still nags Zand about his weight like I do <laughs> dad Zand. is horizontal he's a, so mum mum worked in in publishing she ran a small mergers and acquisitions boutique firm doing 
scientific publishing work. She's, you know, she's super smart and ambitious, but deeply kind of kind and generous. Dad's very creative. He's an, he was an industrial designer. He's become an, an artist and has a very sort of strange genius about creativity. He has to create constantly. He's constantly sketching and producing and thinking of weird stuff. Mum mm. made childhood safe and educational and Dad created a huge amount of moment-to-moment fun, uh, blowing stuff up, dyeing our food different colours. Every <laughs> breakfast was an experiment. <laughs> it's so difficult to describe your childhood. What would I say? Uh, there was a division of everything between our parents. Our mother brought discipline and a kind of role-modelled diligence and conscientiousness. And our dad, who has all those qualities, but is more... He was not the breadwinner, and he was a bit more anarchic. And he would run little experiments on us and um, <laughs> allow us to do whatever we liked. And sometimes that went very poorly. Most of what we do on our, our kids show, Operation Ouch, it was all just dad's ideas. So dad would go to the butcher shop. He always called the butcher shop the dead pet shop. And we thought it was very funny to go in there and there was this idea that all the animals in there were someone's pet. So we'd buy the, you know, the heart of someone's dead pet cow. And... Um, and we'd take the heart home and he would plumb the heart in and then we'd see if we could figure out how the heart worked and we'd pump blood everywhere. And dad didn't know any biology, so he was mucking his way through it, but he could figure out the valves. I mean, God knows how he knew any of this. I mean, I wouldn't know anything about the heart valve. I finished medical school not knowing that much about the heart valves. Uh, our, our dad was an industrial designer. I don't know how he how he knew all this. But anyway, it was an amazingly cheap and funny way of <laughs> entertaining his children and then we would cook it and eat it all we did we did cook it and eat it so no waste uh, yeah i mean as close to zero <laughs> waste as was, was fashionable in the 80s i suppose um, yeah. and it's funny now because they're both still alive we can talk to them they sort of know which bits of our adult life we think they should get the credit for <laughs> which is obviously <laughs> nonsense now now i say it out loud I mean, that's totally stupid but i i hope they both feel equally loved <laughs> i do want to rewind a bit though to bratty the nickname where did that come from and do you and zand therefore have equally I'm not going to say unkind, but no, equally we don't know. equal Jay, nicknames. Jay, Jay's got poor Jay. I mean, I, I mean, he couldn't have called us brats. We were the older, grown-up, you know, we're three years older. You can't call us a brat. And mm-hmm. there were two of us. So he was bratty and that morphed into... Do you remember the milk ad where there are two children from Liverpool and they're talking about a football team called Accrington Stanley? Yes, I do. Yes, Every, I do. Everyone remembers this. I mean, you can't. Right? And um, so that became Bratlington Stanley. And now, as often as not, we call him Stan. And then he was called Turdsley for a long time. <laughs> I don't think he'd mind me saying any of this. Maybe he would. It's a bit sad that we haven't invited him on as well, so he could have his say. I might phone him up after and just get him to send me a little voice note about how he feels about being called Turdsley. So in terms of my nicknames, uh, you, you've got Brat, which I guess is fairly self-explanatory. Um, Bratty, Bratsworth, Bratlington. And then that also turns obviously into Bratlington Stanley, which then turned into Stan and Stanley. And which in turn then turned into Stanton. And I think Stanton St. John sometimes. And then you get sort of more common stuff like turd, turdis, shit, shitsworth, little shit, 
And I guess when I'm feeling really angry, they often call me Mr. Mr. Whoop Timps with the sort of emphasis on the whoop, whoop Timps to really infuriate me. He's very funny. We, we interview him about food for this podcast and he, he's very good at observing Zand and I. So he sort of does this dissection of the differences between Chris and Zand. And I'm like a, an anxious bird sort of pecking and hunting and constant movement. And Zahn's more like an excavating machine eating the same vast volume, but just as a sort of continual flow into his mouth. <laughs> Jason paints these amazing images. He's very funny. I mean, we both, it happens with parents. It happens with younger siblings, doesn't it? You suddenly go, oh my God, this person I've just called bratty and ignored or beaten up his entire life. Suddenly he's a really funny, interesting person I'm at university with and I want to hang out with him and all his friends are cooler than mine and mm. he knows nice girls. Mm. Mm. There is a moment where your sibling becomes a friend and that's a kind yeah. of extraordinary if moment. If you're lucky, and if your parents are lucky, actually, I'm learning with mine, if your parents are lucky, your children become friends and that's a gift, I think. Do you think, though, that parents have a role in that? That, that your parents aren't lucky? If your parents create the right environment and probably you're somewhat compatible that, that they they lay the foundations for that friendship um I, I i don't think it's that simple because as i've learned on this podcast each child probably with the exception of twins but maybe still with twins is born into a different family you're mm. kind of born into a different tide a different time a different home a different economic setup a different mood a different and so actually the family you're born into is not the same one that your sibling experienced. And that's only one of a multitude of different things that come to bear on the relationship. Character being one and ambition and temperament and ability and interest. But that seems to me to be really important. Um, doesn't mean it doesn't. you can't be friends. I'm friends with I my feel... sisters and we lived apart. But, you know, it's true. <laughs> I feel really put down as a scientist that you've just pointed out all the variables that I didn't control for. <laughs> I mean, you idiots. Mr. Lesniowski from uh, third form would be very proud of me right there. <laughs> I can imagine as well that for Bratty, it was just a massive pain in the bum. You two sort of straight A's and smugly off to medical school. He must have been like, oh, great. Either the heat's taken off him or everyone's thinking, so what are you, you going to pull out of the bag then? Mum, mum's genius is, what's the Marxist according, according to need? So not everything is given out equally in terms of love, affection, money, favours, time, but it's always given to the one who needs it most. And we all get that and we're all the beneficiary of that. Mm. And so there's never any sense that anyone's getting any favourite treatment. And that who, I don't think she'd mind me saying any of this. Maybe she will. Mm. Um, I, we've never been very competitive. It's always, It was always really, once we were all grown-ups, I think we kind of realise if Jay does well, we do well and, and vice versa. So so why are you as a family quite so, or why are you, the little pecky bird, quite so obsessed with food? Where's that come from in your family? Oh, that, that's come from our genes. So um, I didn't sort of realise this. That we know that obesity is to a very great extent a mixture of genes and environment. And all of the, did you know this, all of the genes that drive weight and weight gain are expressed in your brain. They're not 
metabolism genes. They're not about how much food you absorb in your gut. They're nothing to do with your bone density. They're not found in fat cells. They're all about your relationship with food. And so on the, the, the Addicted to Food podcast, we interviewed Giles Yeo, who's a very well-known geneticist. He's on telly a lot. He tested my genes a few years ago when we I made a program with Giles about weight. And I have all of these significant genetic risk factors for obesity. And so anyone who knows me and Zand would go, yes, they have a really peculiar, obsessive relationship with food that they... And lots of people will recognise this in themselves, that I will plan a holiday around a good meal. You know, I will... If Zand and I are working... To, we've just been working together filming and we spend the entire day talking about the evening meal and rummaging through the reviews on the pubs and looking at the menus and downloading the menus and planning you know it, and that's all genetic stuff in the brain that drives your food relationships whereas some people it's just fuel there's a whole universe of saying i'm a foodie i'm into cooking you know there's all that stuff which i think for us would probably also disguise a, an interest and an enthusiasm for food that has certainly led me to be overweight. Um, and I think occasionally, maybe not so much anymore, we're, we're trying to be careful, especially after making the podcast and looking into ultra processed food more. But there would definitely be a thing of both of us going and have a, a proper sort of blowout, a, a proper binge, mostly on Chinese food. And we, we, we would cook some banquets that were just, you know, an enormous quantity and variety of food. Um, but I still look at them with a certain amount of joy and affection. But what you can do in your 20s and 30s is maybe not wise for a 42-year-old who's overweight with a heart condition. So part of it is, is genetic, which is a kind of sciencey answer. And part of it is our mother was is, is, a, is a, an amazing cook and edited the definitive cooking series of the 1980s at Time and Life Books. Mm. Um, and so she was friends with these chefs like Elizabeth David and Richard Olney and these sort of the gurus of amazing cooking and food writing when we were growing up would come to the house and make us dinner and we'd go and stay with these people in France and they'd cook for us wow so most humans do love food and are reasonably obsessed with it it's why it's on telly the whole time but I think Zand and I realize as well that we we have an addicted relationship with certain kinds of food that we will both eat beyond pleasure, beyond comfort, um, to the point where we know it's doing us immediate harm, where we'll eat so much we won't be able to sleep, and we know it's doing us long-term harm. In much, I think, with far more vigour than I have ever abused any other drug or substance ever in my life. You know, I don't, I've never had that relationship with cigarettes or alcohol or mm. caffeine. You know, you have certain friends that you know you can get away with being naughty with, you know one that you might go on a big night out with and you know one that mm. will let you spend lots of money. There's a sort of permission in some relationships. And I wonder whether being a twin, this is the pop psychologist in me, you have this sort of permission oh, no, in this. your in your attitude to food where you know that the thing you do is you rummage through the pub thing and you know you're going to eat too much. Did it tip over from permissive fun into disorder at any stage? I mean, it's sort of, yeah, I, I mean, the question is, you know, how uh, I, I, I never felt like it was out of control. I think I think there's a problem where we're so surrounded by the the type of food that drives addictive eating behavior, ultra processed food, um, that 
this kind of disordered behaviour is just very normal for so many people. I mean, one in three UK adults are living with obesity and its consequences. And so this is pretty normal. And what's weirder is I have managed through no fault of my own, through luck, through blind luck of sort of meeting my wife and having a particular lifestyle over the last decade where I just didn't have the opportunity to eat much. I did a lot of physical stuff and my wife is really amazing and is very sort of healthy. While Sand has had a very different life, so he's he's somewhat heavier. And and it's nothing to do with, with his fault. It's just he's lived in a different food environment. But in him, his his weight gain genes have been allowed their full expression. Whereas I'm in I am the uh, in inside my relatively thin person is a is a is a fat person waiting to get out. What could you do to Zand, like to instantly wind him up? What sort of button could you press with him that would make him wild, sort of in an instant? I, uh, I'd go. Um, uh, we have to get better organised. That's how I'd begin. <laughs> I really think we. What we need is to make time to make time. That's like one of my little things. Um. I don't I don't want to be annoying but can I just say yeah something like that um often it would be oh, what's the thing I, I I know that there's something that what is the thing that always always sets us off should um, I tell you for time it's it's sake? a it's a it's like it would be like a, you're interrupting me you're not listening is it one of the is it that kind of thing no it's like he would say something like we need to take time to make time Oh my goodness! It drives me mad. Of course, that is, I mean that is. So what he does is he will he will phone me up and he goes, "Oh, we need to make a plan. We need to make a plan to make a plan. We need to take the time to make the time." He always does this, and he go or he'll go. I want to sketch it out. I want to sketch it out. I want to block it out. I want to whatever it is, anything. He wants to make a big map and make a big plan and do it all. And I want to get on with the thing. And it's so annoying. And then when I go, all right, make the plan, he can't do it. <laughs> Oh. And what would you do to to make him feel like you're just feeling? Nothing. I'm perfect. I would never annoy him in any way. What would I do? I would I would do the opposite and say, could we please get on with it? Could we just crack on and the problems will emerge and the plan will change anyway, so there's no point in making one. Oh my goodness, you're just gonna have you're gonna have recorded the complete argument, but just in <laughs> several bits. <laughs> and what could he do to you? We have had a lot of therapy sort of therapy or coaching or we've, we've gone and seen lots of people to stop fighting because we're a crappy team and we love each other and we we should be a good team but there's no hierarchy no one's in charge and we both think we know best and we, we're crappy listeners can i say crappy yep if you have a team where the two people there are only two people on the team and they both have exactly the same weaknesses and strengths <laughs> it's not a very good team um and a lot of his problems lead me to self-loathing as well as annoying <laughs> irritation with him you know if chris messes something up my first thought is why did he mess that up my second thought is that's exactly the sort of thing that i would have done <laughs> um, so we've gone and seen like professional therapists who deal with family business relationships to, and that it's all been sort of more or less helpful we settled on this idea of a chess clock at one point where one is speaking, one gets five minutes. When five minutes is up, the chess clock switches and the other one gets a go. Mm. 
And in the end, the therapist, we were, we were off to do some big project and we'd done a lot of sessions and we said, look, come on, we just need something to get us through this next bit. And she said, do you ever have meetings? And we were like, why, why would we do that? <laughs> and she said, you might want to try having meetings about your work. And we'd literally, Chris would phone me at 6am and, and go, hey, how are you doing? How's Julian, my son? Or like, oh, mm. did you see that film last night or whatever? And then would go, by the way, I'm really worried about the deadline for this project. And it, our whole, everything was a mess. And she said, why don't you, why don't you separate the personal and professional sounds so obvious but we had <laughs> utterly failed to do it <laughs> and so we we have just had our producers on this week of operation Arch, we've just been filming had 10 golden rules on the wall the first of which was that at the first hint of trouble one of us has to leave and go for a five minute walk and what we think about on that walk is prescribed like you can't just go for a walk angrily you have to go and think nice things about your brother so we <laughs> We actually have had the irony very, of that being a kids' program is not lost. On a kid me. came. A kid came and watched. If anyone brought brought their daughter to watch, and uh, I said, oh, "Did you have a nice day, Isla? Did, what did you learn?" She said, "Well, I learned about the human body, and I learned that brothers argue a lot." <laughs> we were like, "We hadn't argued once." <laughs> it's it's. I mean, it's never going to be easy working with family, but I wouldn't want anyone to think that we don't. You a day of work with Chris, I always learn something spend a lot of the day laughing but there will be at least 20 minutes of the day where i want to strangle him (laughs) (laughs) he's the partner i can't get a divorce from i can't leave i can't there's no power i can't win the argument so all you can do is scream and shout because there's there's nothing else to do it's so silly because none of our arguments are ever about anything anyone listening to it would go you're both wallies make the plan then start the work Oh, can I just um, have a little moment for the underused word Wally as well? Such a good one. In our family, my dad still calls people chumps. You utter chump. Ah! <laughs> it's such a great word. <laughs> that's another one. Oh, that's brilliant. Chump implies that you're slightly gullible, that you've fallen for a thing, I think. <laughs> and you um, can be chumpy, so... I think, which is cute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm going to nick that. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you to Chris and Sand. Thank you too for listening. Am I now starting a row? Is that what I'm no, doing, Zan? I, I didn't know if his quietness was like cross quietness. I, it felt a bit cross in my headphones. Is it cross? No, Am I just like banging? I'm just banging I'm, my usual drum. I've made progress by, by listening. <laughs> Thank you too to Tanita Tickerham, who let us use this amazing song. Sound design is by Nick Carter at Mix Sonics and digital production by Charlotte Griffiths. Next week, Dame Jenny Murray, former Women's Hour and Today programme presenter on Being an Only Child. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast or see some really sweet pictures of Chris and Sand, head to relativelypodcast.com. There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside There's a good tradition of love and hate Staying by the fireside Another rain may fall your father's calling you, you still feel safe inside, and your mom's too proud. Your brother's ignoring you, you still feel safe inside. Oh, was it solo? Was it yesterday? Was it true for you? Cause while all the rest have taken time, it's didn't
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.